Saying low, Apple Music. The other day, somebody reached out to me and said, hey, would you be interested in having a conversation with Robin Thicke? He has a brand new album out. He's come to a lot of really strong, positive, holistic realizations over the course of the last seven or eight years. And he's ready to have a very honest and open conversation, as transparent as possible, about everything from the controversy surrounding his biggest hit blurred lines through to his divorce, losing his house in the Wolsey fire, getting remarried, becoming a father again, losing his father, losing his mentor. And I'm listening to all of this and I asked my friend, all of that happened? And he's like, yeah, Robin Thicke has lived a life in the last eight years or so. He has been through significant change and he's made a new album. I listened to it and I was just blown away by how free and positive and holistic this record is. It is classic, instant vintage, soul pop music with that voice and that tone. But to get to that place where he can make this kind of album, he had to do a lot of work to get through that timeline of life-changing events. So all of the challenge and all of the triumph coming together in this conversation right now with Robin Thicke on the interview series. It's a rare situation where I get to start at the end because the end is the beginning <laughs> right. of something altogether brand new. But it's just such a you know beautiful opportunity to to begin at the very end of the album um, because it's the first song you wrote for this body of work, which has been long in the making. This incredible body of work, Robin Thicke, a beautiful, soulful record, honest record, a record of growth and maturity on earth and in heaven. Good to see you. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm so happy to do this. You know, I, I got so excited, like, you know, because I listened to you. And uh, I really appreciate you. And, um, you know, before when you get excited for like a Howard Stern or a Oprah or a big interview, you get all dressed up. But now you just sit down at your computer. <laughs> I'm like, I'm all excited for this interview and I just sit down at my computer. <laughs> I'm excited too. I've always appreciated your energy whenever I've met you off the record as well. You know, you bring a lot of a lot of energy and a lot of, you know, you're very friendly, very sort of lovely human being. And I've always appreciated whenever I see, you know, it's always lovely to be acknowledged by you and to say hello. Um, Thank you, sir. You know, it's, I, I kind of like it. I kind of like that we get to do it like this because it, it drops all the walls and it, it takes away any of the kind of awkwardness of, of walking onto a set and, and having to find that honest and spiritual and, and holistic place surrounded by strangers and strange environments. Um, hopefully <laughs> you're, you're comfortable because I am. I'm all, I'm all about finding that space, you know? Yeah. Well, you found it in the music. You know, every album has to start somewhere. Every project has to have a starting point. Right. Um, and it's a song. It's a moment when you connect and you go, okay okay, I'm ready. I think I know what I have to say. Right. You're exactly right. Yeah. I was playing around with a bunch of other songs and, and sounds. And, and then um, when my father passed away, all of a sudden, none of that mattered anymore. Made sense. And uh, the first line of that song is turn a boy into a good man. You know, and, and what happened to me was when my father passed, I, I looked to my son you know, and I looked to the kind of man that I was and I looked to the kind of man I wanted him to be. And that's where that lyric took shape was it was about my father and myself and my son and what love can do to lift us out of our toughest times, you know. 
it's never easy. It's one of the hardest transitions in life, hardest bridges to, to cross. And if we're lucky, we get to cross it because that's the natural order of things where our parents move yeah. before we do, but, but too early right. in this particular case. And um, it brings home, you know, I think a lot of thoughts for people based around um, context. And, and, and I wondered whether you asked yourself questions in hindsight, you know, um, did I live up to his expectations? Did I make him proud? You know, is there more I can do now to carry on the legacy of being a son? And now a father, because you're both. I, I feel that at nine in the morning. I feel it at seven at night. I feel it when I'm, uh, you know, I mean, there's a few people in your life that not only um, guide you and teach you and show you the way, but you also want to impress them. You yeah. And then you want to celebrate with them, yeah. you know, like then you get to a point and you want to, that's the first face you want to see to celebrate something, you know. And so when you lose that, or when you lose a couple of those, which I happen to have in the last few years, I've, I lost my mentor, Andre Harrell, last year. And, and losing, losing my father, I didn't know where I was at the time, but I had to write songs because that's how I get through things, you know. But when I lost Andre, it was almost like, wow, this is too much. Those were the two people that I was going to celebrate all of this with. My, my children, my grandchildren, my, my songs, my TV show, my, anything I was going to do, these would be the first calls to celebrate with, you know? And to lose that, you know, it made me realize that they had already given me so much. They had taught me so much how to be a good man, how to be a good father, how to be a good artist, how to be a, a, a good entertainer, you know? And so I just put it on my shoulders that I owed it to them to finish this album to do my best every day with whatever's right in front of me, you know? So who do you call now? Now that there's an opening, who do you call? You know, I call my brother, uh, Carter, my younger brother. We are our father's sons. <laughs> we are cut from the same cloth. And I call my son, my 10-year-old son, you know, is uh, my other first call because he has become everything that, you know, I, I wanted to be. He's in, he's, he watches Hitchcock movies. He studies Japanese anime. He's, he's 10 years ahead of me. He's already uh, studied Ella Fitzgerald and Lauren Hill and Sam Cooke. And so he's uh, following in his father's footsteps and blazing a, a new trail. And, and there's nothing that feels better when you want to pass on what, what I feel my dad gave me so much and I just want to pass it on. And then I see my son thriving and and in and loving life and loving the arts. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. The entertainment industry is not a normal place to grow up in. You know that more than anybody. And yet you're raising your children in the entertainment industry. And so there must be lessons learned and there must be ways that you can go through and, and from your own learnings, make sure that they are protected and given a pathway that is their own. And ultimately that they realize the bubble of the entertainment industry is not the reality within which anybody needs to refer to. Um, before we get to what it's like to be a father in 2021, trying to navigate those choppy waters for you as a kid, um, with your father, being a star on screen and moving in multiple areas of the entertainment industry. Um, you found yourself in your way into it. How was that? How was that looking back on it now, that sort of like faux reality of this is what I'm in? Oh, totally. It was, um, it was exciting. It was, um, inspiring, but I, but my dad was such a goody good guy. You know what I mean? His image, his TV show, everything was so I wanted to be. And, and here I am listening to Run DMC and Guns N' Roses, you know, and and uh, I wanted to be a rebel. You know, I wanted to be the opposite of my dad. You know, I wanted to have long hair and 
and be a bad boy and do all these things. And, and now here I am, you know, after he's left us, now here I am, I'm on a big TV show. I'm, I'm doing Alan. I'm doing my father on the TV show. I'm a full-time dad and I, and I fully embrace being like him more because it makes me feel like he's still here. When I'm telling my son the same things he told me, I feel that he's, he's there with us, you know? You know, your career has been unlikely on paper, but in the most beautiful way. And all the times that the industry has gotten in the way and told you, hey, it's not going to work, you know, you don't fit the, the, the vibe. You don't, you're not that what we need to see or hear in this space right now. Artists have come to your support. You are an artist's artist. And it was interesting, me just reminding myself of your journey in totality that every time someone said no, it was an artist that kicked the door open with you and said, no, 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 we get it. Right, right. There's always been somebody who showed up. I mean, when I met Andre, well, first, actually, I'll tell you the, the good, um, the beginning story, the origins. When I was about 14 years old, Brian McKnight heard my demo and he was coming off of one of the great R&B albums of the generation, you know, his, his debut album. Yeah. I was an enormous fan of take six. That's where I was learning all my harmonies and I was learning all these vocal chops from studying take six at home. So then I get to meet Brian McKnight. Next thing you know, I'm in the studio with him and I'm literally at 15 years old watching him do these vocal arrangements and harmonies and, and, and jazz chords. And I'm sitting there learning from this guy so that was my first training camp. Then I got to work with on Jordan Knight's first solo album. And who did Jordan Knight go work with? But Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Walter Afanasiev, Teddy Riley. And he took me with him and Raphael Sadiq. And he took me with him to I all mean, of these places. So I got at 18 years old, I got to be in the studio with Raphael, with Jam and Lewis. With, so my training grounds was... <laughs> You're at ball practice with the. You're at ball practice with Magic's Lakers. It's crazy. Absolutely. This is yeah. I'm the, my shoot around is with Michael Jordan. You know. So, so here I am with all of this incredible training, and then I get to 20 years old, and I had made a, an album with under Brian McKnight's label, but we shelved it because it was just trying to be Brian McKnight. I hadn't found a voice. I hadn't found a thing. It was a teenager trying to sound like him. You know. Then I got to around 20 years old and I decided, I, and I was having a lot of success as a writer-producer, but I decided I was going to devote all my time to my own music. I wrote a, a couple of new songs and all of a sudden I meet Andre Harrell. Hmm. Andre Harrell is coming off of Uptown Records and Bad Boy's success as the president of Bad Boy. And he wants to move to L.A. and start a whole new label and a whole new vibe in L.A., a whole new Malibu thing, right? He meets me. I'm the epitome of his Malibu thing. But I'm a chubby songwriter producer i've never performed before and maybe once i've never I've, i haven't been on stage except for talent shows i'm not a performer i'm not a star at all right so he shows up and he's coming from new york city and puff daddy and j-lo the energy is just different he teaches me everything he teaches me how to walk how to talk what to do with my hair he dresses me for my photo shoots he he just taught me everything he knew and that and that's why here i stand with more information than anyone ever deserved. <laughs> yeah, you know, you mentioned Andre before and we know we were all shocked and dismayed at his passing and sent all of our love to his yeah. family and continue to, you know. Um, you know, he was a, a, just a remarkable person as much as he was an incredible talent finder, spotter and nurturer into the public sector. And when I think about like him as, as, as you know, a mentor, the list of artists that pay respect is, is, is so long. What, what was the ultimate that, that you got from him? What is the, the life lesson that you carry with you if you could distill it down into its, 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 you know, most essential? Most people just don't believe in magic. 
They don't believe in greatness. They don't believe it could be you, you know? And he does. Right from the bat, he looks at you. Maybe you're not supposed to be Dolly Parton, but maybe you're supposed to be Dolly Parton's manager. And you could be great at that. Maybe you're not supposed to be, maybe you're supposed to be one who does the wardrobe. You know what? You should dress Dolly Parton. That's what you'd be good at. He always found something for you to do now that would make your life better and make you happier and, and, and help you realize something that like, I remember when he met me, nobody believed in me, but me. <laughs> you say that though, but, but what's interesting about that statement is that well, as he, a writer, as a writer, but he built you as a star. And I wonder when it, in the past, when I've spoken to artists who have benefited from that experience and hindsight, it's a blessing, but at the time it can often lead to a pretender complex because, yeah. because people see so much in you that you don't naturally see in yourself. It can stoke your insecurities and make it more challenging to believe what other people believe about you. Did you go through a phase like that? I did actually um, later uh, when, in the Blurred Lines era when I was getting my first taste of that kind of fame. Yeah. And I, because I started to chase it more and, and need it more and think that that was what was going to make me happy, ultimately, of course, it never does. It didn't. And mm -hmm. I lost myself in the process chasing something that, that I never had and never needed. But then once I got some of it, I thought I needed it. It's a typhoon. And I'm glad you brought that up. That is a typhoon. And it's great seeing you and Pharrell, this lifelong friendship, which started long before Blurred Lines, once again, reunite on the song, you know, that you worked on this record, Take Me Higher. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the middle, you know, the 2.0, because the 1.0 is evolution. 2.0 is Blurred Lines. Right. And Blurred Lines to me... It's funny, isn't it, that at the time it feels like you're moving into this incredible horizon, but then the storm brews. Fame can build the storm around you that you weren't expecting. And so, and so very, very few artists of the last decade, I feel, can relate to what you and P and others went through where it was all laid out for you and then it just all seemed to disappear overnight because of the controversy that surrounded that success and various decisions that you made or otherwise in the way the song was perceived. So how did that feel at the moment, you know, in that moment when you sort of had it all and then it's like, wait, what does it all mean to me right now? Well, I don't think it really clicked in right away. I think you your arrogance and your ego, you think that you'll, you'll just make a new record and you'll get yourself through it and you'll just do a new video and you'll get yourself through it, but you're not actually processing. Yeah. And you're not improving. You're not growing from it, you know? And so for me, it, it wasn't until I actually went to Malibu, slowed down, focused on my son, and, and then my father passed and I focused on having more kids and more of a family and taking my time with the writing because... I was writing so much, but nothing was really saying anything that, you know, mattered to me as a whole, as a whole, bits and pieces, you know. And, uh, and then I just kind of started to realize that I always wanted to be an artist, artist, a singer, songwriter. And, and I, all I cared about was my catalog, you know, was the songs. And then I got into all this other stuff that uh, you just get caught up in, man. And, and then I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy. And I had bad routines. And I lost myself. And then even worse, I lost the music. I lost my trust and my confidence in my own music. And so that didn't come back totally until Andre passed. And I'll tell you a great story. So Andre's last words to me, about a week before he passed, I played him the album we, uh, over Zoom. We listened to the songs that I had. And he said, I don't know, Rob. I don't think that's a hit. It's, that doesn't sound like you. It doesn't have the horns and the strings and the background vocals, where's all that Robin Thicke stuff? You know, it's, I don't think it's going to be a success, man. <laughs> so, 
God, you just can't, you just, you just, you've got to cherish that honesty while you have it. You can't buy that. You can't, you can't buy that. Mm-hmm. And, and so he told me the truth. And then a week later he, he left us and, and I just went to work. You know, I just said, I'm going to do everything. I know that bird, that Andre bird on my shoulder is saying, where's that? Put some horns in it. <laughs> where's the baseline? I remember when, you know, you were doing the rounds around the Blurred Lines record and you would come into, into the BBC where I worked or whatever. And I remember everyone would be very excited because the record was a hit and it was a huge hit everywhere all over the world. But you didn't look healthy. If I can be really honest, you didn't look healthy. No, no, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. No, I was not. I was, uh, that was, you know, like I said, bad routines, distractions, bad habits. Vices. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. Well, the, the party thing you get to that. What happens is every night is a performance and a dinner and a party. Then you're on to the next city and it's a performance and a dinner and a party. And then you get caught up in it. And then you end up with some, um, some personal struggles with, you know, like your marriage or things like that. Yeah. And for me, it was all like, it was like 20 great years and then, and then fame hit at the worst time and throw it all into a melting pot. And I was in the, I was the wrong guy for the job. <laughs> wow. That's a powerful statement, you know, and it really was in a weird way. You're right. It's, it's like you spend 20 years getting to a point where you achieve the dreams that you think are going to make you whole. And then you wake up one day yeah. and the real things that make you whole are eroding around you, your personal health, right. your mental health, your relationships. You know, you talked yes. about your marriage. It's not lost on me when I look at the timeline um, that not long yeah. after your most successful period, um, your most successful relationship to that date fell apart. Absolutely. Well, you know, we were both riding our, our, um, heights of our careers. So we were apart six to eight months of the year. She's, she's on a set I'm touring and, and then success breeds things, you know, and all that other stuff comes, but you know, blame, you can blame anything on someone else, but it's like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but you don't get anywhere. You don't improve, you don't move, you know? So I realized that it's, I have to look at Everything that happened could have happened better and different if I was a if I was in a better place. If I was in the place I am now, I would have done everything differently. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. That's part of growth. I mean, that's that's part of growth. That's part of maturing as a human being, regardless of what we see as an artist. I heard a great line. Uh, I was talking to Steve Harvey recently, and he said, "Hang on a minute." You know, he said, "Sorry, man, oh, is you that something? Are you kidding me? Come on, it's Steve Harvey. Survey says, what are you talking about? Well, well, I, yeah, I love Steve. Steve has been one of my biggest supporters. Well, he gave me a great quote where he said, I spent my forties fixing everything I did wrong in my thirties, you know? Right. And, and, and that just, that just hit home. Like, and I think there's a sense of when you lose yourself and you become somebody you didn't want to be, then you have to build your soul back. Yeah. You know, you got to build back the pieces and, and I'm, I'm building it back by, uh, you know, being a great dad and, and, and treating people right and, ma- and making up for my mistakes, you know? This album is a reflection of all of that. And you have really captured who you are today with all of that maturity and ability still intact. In fact, way, way more, you know, on display in terms of performance and connectivity than, than Blurred Lines or any of those other projects in a way. Because like, as you said, fame is something that gets inside the process and distorts it to some degree. And then you find it that yeah. you're on stage performing and it's not who you truly are. You're on stage at the VMAs performing with Miley Cyrus. You must think about at that moment now and go, wow, I really was in a weird way, somebody else. I was definitely playing the character 
that I thought they finally liked, the version of me that they that everyone finally approved. Oh, we like Blurred Lines. Okay, well, then I'll be that guy, you know? Mm. But that but Blurred Lines was a caricature created by, you know, uh, the genius Diane Martell, you know? She saw me and said, we got to give you some edge. We got to do something. <laughs> since, I, since I first started, they, all, they, they always said, well, you need some edge. You need some edge to hear that from people that you trust to help build around your vision and be told you're not edgy enough. What is that doing to self-esteem of a young person? Well, that wasn't necessarily Andre's uh, theory. That wasn't how he spoke, but it would be the other people that weren't as involved in your career. Are we going to invest in this? Are we going to market it? Are we going to spend money on it? Is it worth our time? Is it worth our resources? He doesn't have any edge. Because he's, he's a sweet guy. He's a singer-songwriter and, and, you know, okay. So he's just a nice guy with a nice voice and nice songs. What do we do with him? <laughs> How confusing to find yourself in a situation where a song that was so huge and so important um, at the time in terms of its intoxicating energy and the, the way it made people dance to be right on the cusp of the conversation change. And the conversation has been importantly changing a lot and the world has had to move with it and, and, and you know, the conversation changes everything. But that song really was on the line there. It must have been fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and strange and disorientating to know you'd made something with pure intentions that ultimately now is being referred to in relation to this must stop. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously the songwriting process, Pharrell and I had no desire. It was just to make people dance and smile. We didn't even notice the lyrical implication, but obviously whatever it makes somebody feel, you have to um uh, pay attention to and listen to, even if it wasn't your intention, it still matters how you feel. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I have, that was a whole other chapter of my life. I have two little daughters in the house. I, you know, I, I change diapers and, and make Paw Patrol lunches. You know, I mean, I, I can't even imagine <laughs> being that person now, you know, as we move forward in the timeline and, and we get closer and closer to this body of work, I have to ask you, what is your relationship like with that song now? When you perform it live versus who you were in 2013 performing it, how have you been able to recontextualize it and make it your own in a different way? Well, really, I, I, I never saw it that way when I sang it or performed it. And usually the first piece when it goes bump, 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 everybody get up, the crowd goes crazy. It's one of their favorite songs of mine, no question. And the people who aren't big fans of mine, that's the only one they know. <laughs> so, so <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but that's well put. <laughs> it's true. It's like, you know, if I'm doing a casino show and they're like, who is this guy? And then all of a sudden, oh, okay, I know this one. Yeah, so you just kind of take it with a grain of salt. I'm, I've realized that, you know, the reason I started all this is because I love music. I love to make music. And then once I started performing, I love to perform, you know. So I just go for that uh, part of it. I've never added anything to it that was extra. You know, I, I've never tried to put anything on it, but we're just jamming and let everybody get up and dance. That's all that song is meant to do. You did something which, you know, really brave artists do if, if they find themselves in a situation where matters of the heart become too hard to ignore and, and the only way through it is to create. And you created a hear my dear. You created a moment which was, you know, I'm going to pour it all out on the record. I'm going to say whatever I need to say. And if only one person listens to this album, it better be her. Uh, and it was, it's an incredibly brave situation to do that when you have legions of fans waiting for another Blurred Lines. Obviously, you don't need me to ask what was going through your heart, mind, and soul when you were losing your marriage, but what was going through your heart, mind, and soul when you were writing an album about it called Paula? Well, you know, it's one of those things where first I wrote the songs, and then I decided to call it Paula. It was not one the other way around. 
And that's why what I think I missed the whole point was at first I was writing pure songs about what I was going through. And then I tried to sell it. That's interesting that you point that out because I spoke to Dolly Parton at the end of last year and she said that she writes songs for her own personal growth and for grieving at times and for processing that the world will never hear. And I've started to ask a few artists that I feel are real songwriters and real artists whether they do the same thing. And the answer is always yes. I have songs that you will never hear that work for me that they may not work for you. Do you think looking back on that and, you know, there's no point in looking back and trying to recontextualize history. But when you think about the album, Paula, now, could you have easily held on that and not released it. Yeah, I mean, there's so much uh, uh, regrets and things that that you could have, but I needed to get to here. You know what I mean? I needed to get. It was here. This was this wasn't in the right place, and this wasn't in the right place. I made the album because I can. Doesn't mean that it was. And it, and the point of views were not a growing person they were a stuck person it it starts and ends with the same in the same place there is no growth in that album it's just uh it's just blabber he's just blabbering it's it's circular it's just amazing to to think that you can be in a situation as an artist and reflect on your own work in that way the self-awareness required to do that is huge you know you needed to get to that place where you have enough altitude to see it for what it truly is let's talk about how you did that you know, it's not something, you know, yours is in a, is in a five-year meditation retreat and you come back with fresh skin and a fresh perspective. Uh, yours is a whole other journey that, that, that's taken in personal property destruction, the loss of great people in your life, as well as new growth, new relationship, new family, new music. Yeah. Let's start to talk about that time. How was it falling from one relationship and falling in love into a new one with all that hurt and all those unresolved issues that made a circular album called Paula? Well, yeah, I think it was, um, I wanted to close that chapter uh, musically, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, I hadn't dealt with properly. I hadn't dealt with why those things happened. Do you know what I mean? I hadn't gotten into that. I was still blaming. I was still, and then just making music and having a drink at night just to keep going, thinking that I'll just keep going through this and it won't matter. You know what I mean? It won't be, it'll be a blip on the screen. But the problem was still inside. I hadn't fixed my intentions. My intentions weren't right. You know, when I made Evolution and when I'm, uh, my intentions were pure, you know, and when I made the Paula album, my intentions were not. And uh, this album, my intentions are pure again. You know, I want to make great music that spreads love, that feels like a warm blanket, that, that brings people closer together, that helps heal wounds and bring bonds back, you know, and that's what I needed. And that's what this music has done for me. And that's what I wanted to do for others. You know, how broken were you when you met April? How much did you, re- do you think now in hindsight, she realized that she had something with great potential in this relationship, but it needed work. I don't think she caught on to the broken until a little later. You know, I, I, I'm charming enough. It's fu- <laughs> no, it's funny how it's in the human condition to want to hold on to something at all costs. So you protect it. You charm your way through it. You keep everything. Hey, we're going places. We're flying nice places. We're going on vacations. Everything's fine. Look at the puppet. Look at the puppet. Look at the puppet. <laughs> look over there. <laughs> but really, yeah, I was just distracting her and myself because we were having a lot of fun and that's wonderful. And I needed that. 
to get through that period. But then when you settle back down and you're not in on vacation, <laughs> then the routines and the issues and the, you know, all that stuff comes up and then you got to do the work. And I, and it took a little time. It took a little time for me to do the work and it took some, there are some understanding times from her, I'm sure. <laughs> How did you let go? Did you, I mean, I'm a big fan of therapy, you know, and I, and I've, and I've leaned into all kinds of things in my routine. Yeah, therapy but, helped a lot. It did help a lot. Therapy helped a lot. Yeah. I have, I'm not the kind of person that needs it weekly, but a few weeks here and a few weeks there. Yeah. Big time. So let's get into it then, Robin. Let's do it, Artsy. Let's find out what was ultimately going on and what therapy made you realize. I asked this of Alicia Keys last year and she gave the most brilliant answer. And I said to her, you know, the, the desire to create art and to share and express oneself ultimately with the purest of intention probably comes from something fractured, from a desire to uh, put yourself back together through the eyes of the world and through the filter of art. It's pretty common knowledge. And so when you started to do the work and you realized you had something that you wanted to invest in and really build around and you family and get back to the purity of making music where was the fracture what really started this whole journey it was andre's passing and covid covid hit and then andre passed a month later and and i <clears throat> i had to look in the mirror and i had to change right away and um and it hit it hit me hard because i realized that i had missed so much time with andre because i was hiding you know, he invited me to dinners, he invited me to parties, he invited me to things, and I kept saying no because I didn't like the way I looked, I didn't like the way I was, I didn't like what people might think about me or what they said about me these days, and I missed so many good times with him, you know? And so uh, I just looked in the mirror and I woke up and I said, I'm not going to be insecure like that anymore, I'm not going to... I'm not going to let these days go by. I'm going to send my friends gifts on their birthdays. I'm going to send them things for Christmas. I'm going to send out Christmas cards this year. I am going to do what I always wanted to do and be the person I wanted to be. And then the music came quickly, you know. But it started with that, that big turn. Isn't it funny, you know, I've been there where you lose touch of what makes you special to others because you don't like yourself and then they lose touch with you and forget the things they loved about you in the first place because you, as you, to your point, don't make them available anymore. Yeah. But isn't it funny that when you actually realize and reconnect with that aspect and believe it, how quickly it can turn things around and how quickly you can start to feel like yourself again. Yeah. Yeah. I just knew that Andre was looking at me and he was like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I could just hear him all day. What are you doing? We find ourselves listening to an album right here called On Earth and in Heaven. It's a powerful, powerful title. It's referring, of course, to a meditation, a prayer, uh, the idea of reflecting those that are with us and those that are with us in spirit. Um, when did the title reach you? Well, you know, I, I had a working title uh, for a while. and um, You got to tell me what that was. Oh, it was just gorgeous. The, the working title was gorgeous. Really good. It was nice. And there's a little intro on the album called Gorgeous because it was about just appreciating the beauty and my, my son, my kids, my lady, my mom, you know, I have enough gorgeous around me to, to enjoy this. And, but then, um, then my, my close circle was like, you know, we just think there's something more powerful though, that what this album says, gorgeous doesn't speak for the album. So I looked over my notes when I was trying to write of what the album meant to me and, and what it was about. And I saw this phrase on earth and in heaven. And it was just somewhere in the middle of my three paragraphs. And I was like, that's, 
that's who I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about, you know? And it's, it's, it felt right. And then I sent it to everybody. Everyone just, Ooh, that's that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's spiritual. It genuinely is. It's a prayer. Um, you know, when, when you think about the spirituality of making music, regardless of whether or not you lean into one specific faith or another, how do you reckon with that? How do you speak to that in your music? How do you rationalize the idea of, of the spiritual, the unknown, where music comes from, why you can write a song you just didn't have the day before and it suddenly appears? How do you describe that experience for yourself? Some of it is, is just that quiet, that, that simple quiet. The more space I get, the better I write. Jay-Z, you know, and it's not just quieting the room or the people around you. It's the mind. You have to quiet the mind and then you have to find the intention of what you want to create. How do you want to make people feel, you know, and then from that something comes because not every day, of course, if we're songwriters, it doesn't come every day, but when you're open to that, something for through your instincts, your experience, and your faith, something tells you what to do, you know? And it might not be a number one thing that it's telling you what to do, but it's telling you how to make something that means something to you. And if it means something to you, chances are it'll mean something to some other people. You know, it's the ultimate place to be because you realize that everything around you is just stuff. And ultimately everything that you need is there for you, but you can't see it. And you certainly can't reach it for the, in the physical realm. It's, it's, you know, it's just the art of being, right? It's, it's been written about and talked about for thousands of years, the idea of how still can you be in your own space as a spirit on this planet in this lifetime. You went through that in a very different and destructive way, that experience, because you lost a lot of stuff, um, you know, and a lot of people around you did, and it was a tragedy. And, and as we go through the, the, the ever-changing climate, um, we're seeing this come up time and time again, but it really hit home and, 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 it, and it landed right on your doorstep. Um, we spoke about this a little bit before, but in hindsight, how was your relationship to stuff when you lose it all? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, um, I think that's all been part of the cleansing, you know, um, is that the, the one thing I was really, uh, uh, upset that I lost was my piano. I, the piano I had for 20 years, I had written all my mm, albums. That's tough. Cause that's something I wanted to pass on to my son or my, you know, that's the song that I wrote all my jams on there. And it's a collaboration. Those instruments, I talked to Springsteen about it. He was like, man, I picked oh, yeah. up this guitar. I wrote Nebraska on it. I've never written anything on it again. That is my friend for that. They are like real experiences with real things. Yeah. And writers are naturally sentimental, you know, because we always are tapping in. We're always tapping in. So we have sentimentalities towards our instruments and our, and our, you know, the same way. What was the actual situation? Were you at home at the time? Was it like a run for your life situation? Oh yeah. We, we were at home when our, when our, uh, our house burned down in Malibu, in the Malibu fires a couple years ago. And we were home in the morning. We were smelling the smoke. My lady was April was on the phone, you know, checking all uh, updates about 630 in the morning. I get up to get my son ready for school and I can smell, you know, uh, the the air. I've got uh, two babies and I mean, and a pregnant woman, you know, so I'm like, we're getting out of here right away. So we just start packing. And then an hour later, they say all the schools are shut down. It's total evacuation, blah, blah, blah. So luckily we were already kind of packed. Yeah, yeah. We tried to go towards the city. It was it stopped at traffic, so we headed up north to Santa Barbara, and went, then we went around to her parents' house, and then we stayed there. And then the next morning, you know, we saw pictures of everything gone, and and for me, it was just like you know another punch in the gut. Yeah. But um, as I've tried to lead by example, the way my father did, when that happened, I told my son, I was like, you know what, 
This ain't going to stop us. We're going to smile today. We're going to laugh today. We're going to play today. We're going to dance today. We're going to make, we're, we can, we can make it through anything. And that is where you start to build from, you know, because once you can do, if you can make your kids happy and make your lady happy through the hardest times, then, you know, you're onto something. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, you're investing in, in, in greatness within people that care about you at a time when, when it's least available. Right. And it requires you to dig very deep at that moment to work out what kind of person you're right. It was a huge part of probably of the rebuilding of who you are to yourself because you recognize you could get that out of yourself. Yeah. It's been a tough run, but you know, I also uh, find myself very lucky. I I find myself very loved and I'm, you know, I'm very blessed and and every day I just wake up and I try to give. I, I went through a period where I was taking more than I was giving, you know? And so now I just wake up and I give to my kids and I give to my work and I give to my lady and I give to my friends and I feel better about myself. And that's what I mean by building your soul back. For me, it's working because I need this, you know? <laughs> I need all of it. You touch on all this in this great record, man. I mean, it is a giving experience. You know, you give love to your family and to your relationship. Um, you pay respects to your heroes. The song that you talk about where you were kind of hoping to get Dr. Dre's attention on this one is a ridiculous banger, <laughs> like an absolute. That's the ridiculous- same thing Jay-Z said. That's, I didn't even think of that, but when Jay- Jay-Z said it reminded him of a Dre record too. Oh, it's crazy, that record. Woo! Wait, what did Jay-Z, Jay-Z heard that? And what did he say? Well, actually, I, I, I got... Uh, because I didn't have Andre to help me with the final track listing, I reached out to Jay, you know, uh, and I said, Hey, you know, I don't have Andre. Would you mind stepping in this time to uh, help me with the track listing? And Jay gave me the greatest, uh, A&R <laughs> advice, of went through each track, went through each track, sent me a little note about each track. What I, and, uh, the good thing was I was, I didn't even tell him because I was kind of sure I didn't need uh, two or three records. But I sent them all of them to see if he said the same thing. And he said the exact same thing. You don't need these three records. And I was like, okay, I'm on to something. And uh, so that kind of sealed it for me because I needed one other opinion that I respected that much that uh, to give me that last sign that I knew I wasn't crazy. <laughs> Dude, you know, when I listen to this album, it's just so lush and so reverent to the artists that have given you so much and inspired you so much. Um, how did it feel to know when you listen back to this album and it was done that you'd been able to create an arrangement and just a sound design that made you feel the way that Marvin's records made you feel, these timeless soul records made you feel? That was always the ambition, was it not, through all the distraction? Well, through all the distraction, actually a lot of that, like I said, Andre, a lot of that, extra production wasn't there. I had a bunch of songs, but I would kind of half make the song and then wait for somebody to celebrate it. I wouldn't finish it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I get that. So then I was like, well, I guess it's not that great because nobody's going crazy, but you're not even finishing the records, Rob, you know? So, mm-hmm. so then after Andre, I just started stepping into the records. And then I realized that I was using so much jazz, uh, trumpets and jazz and flutes and saxophones. And and the funny thing is, it's in my DNA. My grandfather was a jazz trumpet player. His father was a jazz trumpet player. Uh, you know, so so all of this trumpet that I wanted to put in was part of the DNA. And then it, on earth and heaven, and it all made sense. And, you know, because I've been delving a lot more into jazz instrumentation within uh, my 
my records as opposed to um, vocal instrumentations. Yeah, and well, it takes you somewhere vocally in, in terms of vocal arrangement. You're right. Otherwise, you're leaning into a space you know intrinsically well. You're in a comfortable spot if you're letting the arrangements work around what you can do vocally. Exactly. But if you force yourself to lean into unknown territory, you're going to find a voice you didn't know you had. Do you hear something in this record that you've never heard before come out of you? There's a family of sound and of of heart that rather than a, that little bit of look at me do you know what i mean it's just that little bit of look at me look at it's me it's such a be- no i totally hear it it's the most <laughs> brilliantly restrained flex on on this record yes. it's like you yeah. know it, it, it you're showing that you have the chops but in doing so i, I talked about luther vandross in this regard where we were playing never too much on my show the other day and we were all just marveling on my team, marveling at the fact that every time that he dropped the whole arrangement out and just went, never too much, never too much, never too much, never too much, that he never riffed on it. And he never went crazy on it and never went, never too much. Oh! And right. he just, yeah. he stayed right where he was because he knew that was enough. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you sound pretty dang good. <laughs> that was pretty nice. <laughs> Thank you, Robin. But anyway, I don't take my job too, man. <laughs> I digress. But the point is, is like in this, in this album, you can totally hear that. I can hear the way that you're leaning into your ability with more confidence and not needing to show off to yourself. Right, right. I think it's just about a little bit of maturity, you know, and I don't think there's better or worse that the, the, the great thing is, is that, you know, by the end, when you listen to Stevie Wonder's catalog or Marvin or Al Green, you don't know which year they made which song. You don't know which, you know, you don't remember which song was on which album. You just know that feeling that you get when it comes out of the speakers. So, you know, even on the Paula album, there are individual songs that are as as much my pure music as anything else. But the whole got messed up, you yeah, know. Yeah, this yeah. time I just wanted to make sure I didn't mess with the the intention the intention was to make a certain thing that felt that felt a certain way and made people feel a certain way and i wanted to stay there that's the magic that's what that is what the magic andre refers to when you can tap into that then we're drawn into it and we want to be in your world again because you're really happy there and it makes sense right Talk to me about your relationship with Pharrell and what makes you guys so close and why you find yourselves eight years after starting a record, finishing a record, and yet it somehow sounds, sounds as fresh today as it did in 2014 or whatever. You know? Well, I think it's just because with me, he gets to go a little bit of a different place than he goes with everybody else. Do you know what I mean? He gets to lean back in time with me where he's usually very, he's such a forward thinker. You know what I mean? So he's usually not into leaning back. But I love to lean back, you know? <laughs> so I guess he gets to tap in a little bit to something different that's fun for him. But honestly, the, the, he is the genius of geniuses. There is, there is nothing that he can't uh, uh, close his mind to. <laughs> Can you qualify that with it, with it? Can you paint a little more into, on, that, on that canvas for us? Because I agree with that as a broad stroke, but I think people would love to know from inside the room what that statement means. He's much, you know, it's like LeBron James, like people think that it's just uh, ability, but they don't realize how much thought LeBron James is putting into every trip down the court and, and, and how much thought he's put into before he even steps on the court. Pharrell is thinking before he's in the studio, he's thinking when he's in the studio, he is thinking all the time about all the forces of nature and art and what's next. 
Do you know what I mean? Hmm. It's mathematical in some yeah. Einsteinian way for him, you know? How are the Lakers looking this year so far? Oh, I, I, don't, I don't know if anybody can take them. I mean, they stay healthy. It's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think about Los Angeles as your, I know it's your home. Oh, yeah. But what, is yeah. It, what does it mean to you through the fires, the divorce, the success, the challenge, the triumph, the renewal, the rebirth? You have to remember, man, I've seen it all before. You know, my footsteps follow very similarly to my father's. He had his greatest failures in his late 30s. Uh, and then he had his greatest triumphs in his 40s. And uh, he had he started a new family. He was he always told me, oh, they all left me and they, you know, nobody was there for me. And I, you know, but not, not that dramatic. Sure. But like that same feeling, like, you know, when when I hit rock bottom and, they, and I got bad reviews and then but he built himself and he worked his way out of it. So I have an amazing example, you know, um, to to follow. And uh, and I know that if you are if I'm a good human being. And I and I show up and I do and I do my work. Anything's possible. What do you miss the most about him? Oh, his jokes! Just the funniest, funniest guy in the world. Could any can come into any room with any group of people from any background and age group and make them laugh and smile and feel good. He was an incredible person. You feel good about yourself right now? You feeling happy? I do, man. You know, I was really excited to talk to you because I know you're legit, you know, and I know you know what you're talking about. I listen to your shows, you know, so I know you know the whole landscape of music and artistic adventure. And uh, this is a, a big point for me in my life, you know, and this is this is where where I have to stay committed to what I've learned. And so, you know, I'm excited about it, but I'm scared, too, you know. <laughs> Welcome back, man. Thanks, Dane. Thank you so much. Thanks to Robin Thicke for showing up to the interview series and true to his word, laying it all out there. You know, when somebody goes through you know, that much life in a condensed period of time and then they show up to talk about music, you're not quite sure how deep they're willing to go, but he really wanted to have that conversation and I was really happy to have it with him. If you liked it, please rate the conversation, leave a comment and subscribe to this podcast right here. Next week, we're joined by Slow Tie. Until then, take care.